good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? Good. Good and gracious King. Amen to that. That is why we're here. We serve a good and gracious King. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 16. Talking about how the body of Christ grows up. How the body of Christ grows up. Um, want to get in on the action and say happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. In honor of Father's Day and also to buy you a little more time to find Ephesians 4 verses 7 through 16. I've uh, prepared a couple of dad jokes for you. That's the proper response. You've, you've all been well trained, I see. What do you call a person who is not a dad who makes dad jokes? <laughs> who? Yeah. Call a faux pas. Again, I know it's a good dad joke by your response. I mean, that's as good as an applause right there. Yeah, that's a good dad joke right there. My dog's a genius. I asked him, what's two minus two? He said, nothing. Uh, Hey, a little more grumbling would be appreciated. These are dad jokes. These are dad jokes. All right, where do do Christians learn to make banana splits? Y'all should know this. Sunday school. Oh, come on, guys. You dads are letting me down. All of you should know that. That's like standard stock material right there. All right, well... Did you all find the, the passage? You're just going to lie just so I stop like, telling dad jokes, aren't you? Yeah, I figured as much. All right, Ephesians 4, chapter 7, verse, uh, verses 7 through 16. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll jump into the passage here. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this time that we can gather together as your church, the bride of Christ, as, as a holy people, a people called uh, to you, Lord, to love you, glorify you, and demonstrate your greatness and your goodness. God, I pray that you will build us up in your grace and your mercy, Lord, that we will be encouraged by the word that you have given to us to help mold us and shape us to be like Christ. And so, Father, I pray more than anything that you are glorified and that we are refined uh, through your refiner's fire, Lord, to be and look like Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you found it. Ephesians 4, starting off in verse 7, says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Brother, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. So as we read this passage, at least when I read through it, four things, same thing, stuck out four different times in this passage. When you see the same kind of idea repeated, you're like, okay, Paul's trying to communicate something here to us. In verse 12, he says, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 15 says, we are to grow up. Verse 16, he says both of these things together. He says, makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. So as we read through this passage, we come away with this very clear message that Paul wants the church to grow up. And I think we would all agree. Say amen if you think everyone here needs to grow up. Amen. I hope you weren't looking at anyone as you said amen. You want to try it again so you get another opportunity? Don't. We won't do that to you. Paul wants everyone in the church to grow up. I think that's our desire for each other. We've all, I'm sure we've all like got home from, you know, being around church people and are like, they need to grow up. They're true. They're right. Probably need to mean it in a little more spiritual, God-honoring way when you say it, but you're absolutely right. We need to grow up as God's church. And the second half of Ephesians spends a lot of time telling us what it looks like practically to grow up. Why do we need to grow up though? It's not a joke, throwaway question either. Because I think it's a really, I won't say a legitimate question. I think it's, it's something that sometimes we assume as Christians when we're saved, that that's all the growing that we need to do. God has rescued me personally from sin and death and hell. Like, like that's enough good news. That's all I need. No growing is needed. I'm just, I'm saved. I'm sitting pretty now. Why is growing needed? And that's, I think, a big question for a lot of people because the way many in the church act is that we're done growing. Salvation is all that God wants to accomplish in my life. I'm done. So why do we need to grow up? What is the purpose of the church? I think it's tied into that question. What is the purpose of the church? Because if we don't understand the purpose of the church, I don't think we will see our need to grow up. So what is the purpose of the church? I think if you just go around and say, hey, what's the church supposed to be doing? A lot of folks, and I think somewhat rightfully so, will point to the Great Commission. They'll say the reason we need to, you know, maybe grow up is, is because God wants us to go out and tell everyone about the, you know, the gospel and the good news, evangelize the world. And I don't want to diminish that in any sort of way because that is a big part of our mission as the church here on this earth. But what's going to happen to missions and evangelizing and the Great Commission one day? It's going to stop. It's going to end. It's going to be no more. God's church has been established, and that's going to be what exists in eternity. Missions, the Great Commission is going to come to an end. And so that is not the grand purpose and meaning for the church. Are you hearing me? Great Commission is good. Don't hear anything other than that. But that's not our calling, our ultimate eternal calling as the church. So what is our grand purpose as the church? Well, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert because I'm going to be stealing forward in, or, you know, from chapter 5. We're not quite there yet in Ephesians. And I apologize. I think that's Pastor Preston's passage, if I'm not mistaken. So I apologize. But I'm stealing forward from Ephesians 5. And in that... In the context of talking about husbands and wives, 
Paul talks about the church being the bride of Christ. It sounds a whole lot about the eternal purpose of what God is doing in and through his church and what he is making it to be and why we need to grow. In chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, in, in talking about the church, he's saying that Christ is sanctifying her so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so we got this idea that we, well, I should say the idea, we have this perfect groom who is Christ. He is perfect, spotless. He is God incarnate. He is perfect in every way. And then we have this, this bride, who the church, that is not. And we need to grow up into Christ to be a bride fit for Christ. That is why we need to grow up. So what is the purpose of the church? It's so that we can be a beautiful and holy bride fit for Christ. And so the question in this passage is, how does the body of Christ grow up to be a bride fit for Christ? You know, and I think a lot of churches, our default technique and methods usually goes to, well, you know, we need to have a pastor who's up front and talks to us every Sunday, you know, and, and tells us all about God's word. And I think that's good and that's important. I'm not diminishing the value and role of pastors within the church. But when we look to scripture in this passage in Ephesians specifically, it broadens this idea. It expands this idea of what is needed to make the church grows. It expands it vastly. And so what, how has God ordained for his church to grow? And it says here in this passage that the way that God has ordained for the church to grow is by the church, God's people building itself up in love. That's what verse 16 says. That's how we grow, by all the parts of the body, all the people in the church using their gifts to minister and help each other grow. For some reason, when I was trying to reimagine like how many pews or rows of seating we had, I imagined three and we got four. So this is really throwing me off. Let's see here. All right, I'm gonna have you say, I'm gonna have these, just these first two groups. This is a really large group. I mean, it's half the, the congregation here this morning. I want all of you just to say properly. Can y'all remember that? Properly. Ready? Properly. Let's do it again. Properly. Properly. Okay, got that? Can you remember properly? I'm gonna give you your cue and you need to all remember at the same time. It's just one word. I'm not asking too much. All right, this group here, right here, you guys are gonna be grow. Ready? Grow. Do it again. You're a small little group. So let's try to like represent. Ready? That was much better. All right, you guys over here, y'all are gonna be love. Ready? Thank you, Al. You're gonna be a great leader. I don't know about the rest of you. Let's try it again. You're, this is love. This is the, out of all three words, love is probably the best one. So let's try it again. Love. Awesome. Y'all are the smallest group, but y'all just did very, very well there. All right. So when I point to you, make sure that you say your part, because this is what we're, we're really talking about this morning. Ready? So when each part is working, love. makes the body so that it builds itself up in well, that's what we're talking about this morning, all right? You are responsible for helping the church to become a bride fit for Christ and to grow up. Now, you might say that sounds very man-centered, not Christ-centered. You know, that's about us making, a, uh, you know, making the church grow. But I'd say it's not at all man-centered because according to this passage again, 
God has blessed each person in the church with a spiritual gift to build up the church and help it grow. The growth is not because of us, our power, or our brilliance. It's due to God's grace and power working in and through us. That is how God's church grows. Now look at verse 7. We were talking this morning about PowerPoint. John Paternoster's the like PowerPoint master. I'm like, I don't know what I am. Yeah, that's my PowerPoint. That's all my PowerPoint right there. So, uh, so my excuse is uh, my PowerPoint is in your hands, okay? You have your own PowerPoints called the Bible, okay? So open it up and read along, okay? Does that work? I know. I'm a, don't be lazy. So verse 7, it starts off with a conjunction and it says, but. It says that conjunction because it's contrasting Two very similar but different ideas. Pastor Preston last week did a good job and he was talking about the unity within the body of Christ. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one faith, one hope, baptism. There is one God and Father of all. These are the things that combine us together and define us as God's church. What we all hold in common are the exact same within. This defines us. And so we have this on one hand how we are united and same in the body of Christ, one body. And today we're going to be looking at, but how we are different. How we are different is that we have differing and varying gifts within the church. We are singing the same song, but we all have harmonies to sing and how that looks and sounds uh, to, to the church and to the world around us. And so uh, it says in verse 7, but grace was given. Grace, when we talk about grace, it's, uh, I think we default, and again, to that uh, definition that grace is God giving us something good that we don't deserve. And so I think back to Ephesians 2 when, when uh, Matt Lawson was sharing with us about the gospel. It says, by, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of work. So that's kind of what grace is. It's God giving you like salvation. You don't deserve it. Okay, and there's an element of that here, but I think there's another more specific way that grace is being used in this passage here. Grace can also refer to God giving us the ability or a gift or power to perform the task to which he has called us to. Now, Paul, a little bit earlier on in Ephesians, uh, talked about this in relation to his own gifting and his own calling that he had been called by God to do. In Ephesians 3, 7, Paul says, and he's referring to himself. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Did you hear it? Grace was given. This gift was given for him to be a minister and to bring the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. God gave him the power and the gift to be able to accomplish the task that he was called to. And so that's how grace is being referred to here. And I want to make this point that the same grace that was being given to Paul a little bit earlier to reveal this great mystery to the, the Gentiles, that same grace is being given to each one of us. It's being given to each one of us to build up the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, it's, set, it, it's kind of acknowledging this, how we are the same, but how we are different all at the same time. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, it says, there are, very, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
There are varieties of activities, but there is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Who has this grace to perform, to have the gift and the power to perform the calling which God has put on your life? Who has this gift of grace? Yeah, thank you, Terry. Yes, not just you, Terry, but yes, us. We all do. We all have the same gift of grace. There's varying, varying gifts, but we all have the same gift of grace and power from one Lord that empowers them all. And that's why it says in verse 7 here, to each one of us, God's grace has been given to each one of us. It's all inclusive. All who are Christ have been given a gift according to God's grace that helps us to accomplish his will, build up the body, and become, what are we growing up into? The body or the bride of Christ, right? We're growing up into the bride fit for Christ. Now, for, for all of you kids on your kids' sheets, I'm going to give you your first answer. For your kids' sheet, it says, God gives all Christians a spiritual gift. There we go. Make sure you fill that in there. All right, verse 7 continues on. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's one of those phrases that's really easy to gloss over. I've been challenged in my thinking and not glossing over portions of Scripture too quickly by one of my, a lot of my fellow brothers, one of them specifically up here, in the Lord. So I bring back some, some long conversations. So when I was going through this, I was just like, oh, yeah, according to the measure of Christ's gift, and was ready to, like, move on. And then I got hung up. I was like, what does that mean, according to the measure of Christ's gift? It's really easy when we think about measuring. It's like, like you're cooking, a measuring cup. Like the girls would be like, oh, take a, you know, a cup of flour or a half a cup of sugar, you know, and you're measuring out different portions. And part of me was thinking, is that what this passage is talking about? That, that there's differing measures, differing portions that is being doled out, differing portions of gifts that God is giving to his people. So, you know, for me, I got half a cup of preaching. Pastor Preston got a whole cup. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for that affirmation this morning. It's Father's Day, remember? Yeah, yeah. I don't even know where to go now. Cup, measuring. So when it talks about according to the measure of Christ's gift, is it saying that Christ is measuring out a little bit over here and I like this guy a little bit more, so I'm gonna give him a little bit more. You know, is that what it's talking about? And when I was looking at it, I was like, I don't think that what it's, that's what it's talking about. But for some of, the, for some of our logical reasons, I could see how that, that would lead us that direction, that, that Christ is portioning out differing amounts of gifts. Like when we look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we have this uh, image of a master who has gone away and he puts his servants in charge. One servant was put in charge of five talents, one was put in charge of two talents, and one was put in charge of one talent. You know, and again, it's like, it's really easy for us in our human logic to be focused in on the amounts that we're given, right? We're like, wow, I wonder why he got five and the other guy got one, the other guy got two, you know? It's really easy to focus in on the amounts. But when the, when the master returned, it wasn't an issue of amounts, it was an issue of faithfulness with whatever you're given. We weren't focused on what was given. And it's interesting because the reward for faithfulness was exactly the same. Didn't matter if the guy was given five or two or, 
or one, the guy with one really messed up, by the way. But the, the reward was the same. After the master returned and that servant was faithful with five and two, God said to the master, said to him both, he said, um, because you have been faithful with little, I will make you uh, in charge of much. He said the exact same thing to both of them. That's not the reward, I think. I think this is the reward. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Whew. I was like, that, that's the point. And so the point isn't necessarily, you know, these, these measurements of gifts and who's got more and less. And sometimes these human games that we like to play. The point is faithfulness. And the point is, uh, is on the master's return. We've been faithful. We can enter into that joy of our master. And so the question is here is, um, you know, what is this measure of Messiah's gift? What does that mean? And I think it's really crucial for us to understand what kind of gift it is that we have. Now, when I think of, of measuring, I think in the way that this passage is talking about, imagine a scale that you would see, uh, you know, at, a, at an old market, an open-air market. You know, where stuff isn't bagged, pre-bagged into its weights. And so you go to the market and you're like, I need a pound of, of flour. And so you've got one of those old school scales, right? And you're like, okay, we need a pound of flour. And so over on this side, you put a pound, a pound, a standard of weight, which equals a pound on this side. And according to this measure of what is weighed down is determining what is the measure of what is given. Does that make sense? According to the measure of what has been, you know, the standard over here and the weightiness of it determines the value and worth of what is given. And I think that's exactly what is, what is happening in this passage when it says that according, you have been given a gift according to the, to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift, it's not a little g there, it's the big g. Because just a couple of chapters earlier, what was... Christ's gift. It was the gift of salvation. According to God, uh, Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, that is the standard of weight that determines the value and worth of the gift that is given to us, his people. Let me put it another way. Um, you know, for, for me, you know, if, I, if I'm like, I want to go get my kids a gift, I'm going to drive all the way from my house and go to the Dollar Tree. And I'm gonna pick them out something nice. And I'm gonna bring it all the way back home and I'm gonna give it to them. They'd still probably be excited because they just like gifts and stuff. But the value and the worth of the gift that was given is directly proportional to the distance that I traveled, the value and worth, the, the, the investment that I had within that gift and the work that I, that took place as a part of that, right? And where I went, it's just like, they know by where I went and what I did that they're not going to get, they might be happy, but they're not getting a great gift. Jesus did not go to the dollar general or the, the value, you know, whatever dollar store that you like going to, to get your gift. And as it points us out, you know, the rest here, it's, um, let me see if I can find my spot here. It says, Jesus descended, he humbled himself, he became a man, he died on the cross, went down to the grave, conquered sin, death, and hell, rescued a host of captives, ascended, returned victorious, exalted above all kings, rulers, and authorities, and is this Jesus who is giving gifts to his bride? 
if men know how to good, give good gifts to their brides, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to his bride? He didn't just run down to the store. He conquered and redeemed all of creation. And this is the giver of the gift that each one of you has been blessed with according to God's grace. And I think that's why Paul quotes from Psalm 68. We don't have nearly as much time as I'd like to be able to delve into Psalm 68. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a hymn of victory, a triumphal exaltation. It's a parade, a celebration, a party in the streets for a king who has returned home after victoriously conquering, and he is now like he is now giving gifts. You know, this is this is kind of the picture that we have of what's going on here. And so Paul is referencing Psalm 68, and uh, it starts off in verse eight. And if you if you read it like you just normally read, it's really lame. But when you think about somebody, maybe one of these captives who is in the street who has been rescued, singing this you would read it totally different. You'd be, it'd be read like you were singing and rejoicing and it'd be a, a loud proclamation uh, that you were telling everybody. This, we're, you're, you're singing this almost, singing about this Messiah that he ascended. This Christ, he descended into hell and defeated sin and death and hell and now he ascended on high and has led, has led a host of captives and he is now giving gifts to men. This is like a resounding, I'm telling everybody, he's rescued us and he's giving us gifts. Come, come, come tell your, go tell your friends, bring everybody here. He's rescued us and he's giving out good gifts. You see how it has a little different sound to it? Would you read it the way I think it was intended? In saying he ascended, what does it mean? Then he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This king who descended, conquered sin, death, and hell, has also ascended. He is now ruler over, not just over his little kingdom, he's ruler over all things. This is the giver of gifts. I say that because I want to make a very strong point, and that's one on your kids' sheets out there, kids. God does not give cheap gifts. God doesn't give cheap gifts. Your gift is measured according to the way of Christ's work in his descension to this earth, conquered sin, death, and health, and his ascension and his reign as Lord over all. This is the God who is giving us these gifts. And so based on the weighty measure of Christ's gift, this is the standard of measure that he has given gifts to all people who are part of his bride, the church, a gift of extreme value and worth. Now considering how much these gifts cost, you can see why there would be great emphasis on using these gifts well. You know, I was thinking back to the Ten Commandments. It says, one of the Ten Commandments says, do not use the Lord, your God's name, in vain. Where's Judy? Is Judy here? What number is that? I didn't pre-plan this. I was just like, I really need to just pick on Judy a little bit. Three? Is it three? Okay. I'll take your word on that. Don't take the Lord, your God's name, in vain. We like to say that that is, you know, just like cursing, using God's name. And I, I think that's certainly part of it. But I think a huge part of it for today's passage is that when we say that we claim to be Christians, we are carrying God's name, 
we are carrying his gifts, and when we are not using them, that is carrying, that is carrying Christ in a vain way, in an empty, meaningless way. Christ's gift, are not, they are not cheap. He intends you to be using those for the building up of the body. You better use your gifts. Going back to verse 16, when each part is working, when each part is working, makes the body so that it builds itself up in, okay, good job. I think y'all getting the hang of things. So God wants to make sure that each part is working properly. And the question is, what has God given to the church to help make sure that each part is doing that? Because using gifts, the, the building up of the body, it rests on the body using its gifts to build it up. So how can we make sure, what has God given to the church to help make sure that the body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do? And we see that in verse 11. It says, and he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, I'll just be honest with you, that whole list is fraught with peril and theologians who have tried to, to define with uh, you know, precision what each one of those um, gifts are. And there's a lot of debate within that. And I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it this morning. I'll just kind of give you a, a brief overview. Uh, but we'll start off with apostles. You know, a lot of times we think about apostles as the 12 apostles, the disciples of Jesus, you know, who wrote much of the, the New Testament there. Uh, you know, it's like that's, that's kind of what we think about when we, when we think about apostles. Apostles literally means sent one. And, and so um, I think when we think about apostles, we got to look at it in two different ways. One, that there are apostles like the 12 disciples who were able to, who were witnesses of Jesus's life and death and resurrection and who were able to write scriptures. Those kinds of apostles, all theologians, I think, essentially agree, you know, Protestant, evangelical theologians will say that that type of apostle no longer exists. We can't write scripture anymore. But the, the idea of apostle as one being sent by God still exists. You know, this idea, what did the apostles do? When we look to Acts 6, their primary role in the early church was, was uh, teaching and praying. And they were foundational to that early church. Everywhere an apostle went, the church was, you know, church was established there. And so I personally, and not everyone would agree, would look at apostles as being very much modern day church planters going and bringing the word of God and planting churches. Uh, prophets, you know, it's easy for us to look back in the Old Testament and be like, prophets, you know, those are the guys that are always foretelling the future. And it's like, there was so much more to prophecy than foretelling the future. Foretelling the future was actually a very small part of what they did. Uh, prophets, more often than not, were coming to God's people and pointing out sin and were calling for repentance. You know, and that's what a lot of the, the prophets did. Um, was, was that, that exact, um, that role. In 1 Corinthians 14.3, it tells us a little bit about prophets. It says, the one who prophesies speaks of, uh, to people for their building up, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And again, there's a lot of debate in what prophets are. are we're sure that prophets are no longer writing scripture from God as they did in the Old Testament, writing the very words of God to his people. But prophets, you know, still have uh, a role in the church. Again, it's debatable exactly about how that fleshes up, fleshes out. But it's for the upbuilding 
encouragement and consolation of his people. Evangelists, whew, finally an easy one. Evangelists are guys um, you know, who are, are going and proclaiming the gospel and they're calling people to repentance. You're bringing the gospel. All right, so that's the evangelist and the, then the shepherds and teachers. And this is another one of the debatable ones is, is some people would say shepherds and teachers are separate gifts and others are saying that the way the Greek is written that they're the same. And that's kind of the position that we've taken is that shepherds and teachers are the same. And shepherds and teachers is referring to, to elder, pastor, overseer, teachers within the church, uh, the role that essentially that, uh, that pastors would have uh, today. And so Paul is highlighting a few specific gifts. It's not a comprehensive list of all the gifts. I don't think there is a complete list of all the gifts that God has given his people. You can look in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to look at you know, some, some more extensive lists. And I don't have time to go through each one of these in depth. But I want to point out that there, are, uh, there is something that all of these gifts have in common. They are all referring to leadership gifts of the people uh, in the church. People who prim whose primary function and gift is to establish the foundation of the church, which is the word of God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of the church. And so these, these gifts are specifically to establish that foundation of the church on the word of God. And they do that through preaching the gospel and teaching the word. And so... I hope that's adequate. We could spend a lot more time on that, but we've got, to keep, we've got to keep moving here. Why is he highlighting that specifically? And that is because, um, is it because they, they are more important than all the give, other gifts? And we have to emphatically say no. He's not highlighting these because they're more important than all the other gifts. You can go and read 1 Corinthians 12, and it talks about the, import, the, the parts of the body that we deem less important or less valuable or less honorable. God has put more on, honor on. And so there's not this, like, this whole game that we like to play as humans and being like, uh, I've got a better gift than you, mine's more important, I'm an eye, you're a foot or a toe. You know, it's like we, we like playing those games. God says we, do, we can't afford to play those games. The body needs each other. And so, it's, so Paul isn't highlighting them because they are the most important. They are very valuable, very important in the church, but so is every part of the body. So why is Paul highlighting these? And it's because they are foundational gifts in the church to serve a very important function. And that's verse 12. What's the function? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Kids, third thing on your sheet there that you need to fill in the blank. Leaders help equip people in the church to use their gift to minister or serve. It's the same idea, ministry and service. That's what these leaders are supposed to do, equip the saints to minister. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 7, he says, I was made a minister. It's how Paul identifies himself. I was made a minister. And it's interesting now that he finds himself in this list of guys. He's an apostle, the apostle Paul. What is Paul as a minister, what is his job to do? To go and equip the church to, to what? Serve, to minister. He's a minister making ministers. You hearing that? I hope that's interesting to you guys. Every one of you is a minister. I met a guy that, uh, two or three weeks ago. I was over at Habitat Restore, and I was trying to drop some stuff off. It was so bad they refused it. <laughs> 
I know. I felt kind of bad. But there's this guy. He came up, and he was like, hey, can you help me with something? I was like, sure. And uh, he was like, he introduced himself. He pulled out his, a little card out of his pocket, and he gave it to me. And he, and he introduced himself. He's like, I'm Minister, Minister John. You know, and, and I was like, that's an interesting way to introduce yourself. And uh, I was like, oh, well, I'm Pastor John. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm just Minister John. You know, he, he didn't like, he, he distinguished it as different. He wasn't saying he was a pastor. He's just like, I'm a minister. He introduced himself that way. And I went home and I was thinking about it. Part of it was, I felt a little uneasy because I was like, do people normally do this? Identify themselves as ministers? And I was like, I, we better identify ourselves as ministers because that's how the body grows. If you don't identify yourself as a minister, as a servant of the gospel, according to the same grace that Paul had and the power of God working through him, guess what? Our, our body of believers here at Calvary is not going to grow. You better start identifying yourself as a minister, same way Paul does. And this is my job and Pastor Preston's job. All of our leaders' job is to make all of you ministers, servants of the gospel in this church, and leaders equip the saints. And how do we do that? We do that uh, by leading. Uh, we do that through teaching the word, modeling the word, and we do it through praying for God's church because it's his work. It's his spirit that is empowering and doing the work in the church. And so leaders equip the saints. How do we, uh, again, how do we do that? Leading, teaching, modeling, and praying. Now, if you read the King James Version, I'm not going to get on to you real hard this morning, so you can admit it if you want. But the King James Virgin, uh, Version, say that right, the King James Version, it inserts a comma into this, into this verse, and I think in a way that has, cre has fueled a lot of chaos within the church. You see, it says in this uh, passage here, let me make sure I read it right. It says uh, in verse... 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. As we read it, it's one, essentially one phrase, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. King James Version, again, look at your PowerPoint Bibles in your hands. Are you looking at them? Put a little comma right there, right in between, where does it say? To equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry. That comma makes a big difference. I know it's probably too, a little early for grammar and stuff, but the difference is massive. Where Paul is saying it's, it's these leaders' jobs to equip the saints. If you put a comma right after that, he's saying it's also these guys' job to do ministry. Right? And build up the body. That comma changes who's doing what. And grammatically, I don't think that comma should be there. And I think theologically, according to the context of this whole passage, that comma should not be there. That's a problem. Because all of a sudden you're saying, okay, we've got these five gifts who are responsible for not only equipping the church, but also building up, uh, you know, doing the ministry and then building up the body. But right at the very start of this passage, it says these gifts have been given to everyone. What's the point of giving a gift to everyone if everyone's not going to use that gift for the building up the body of Christ? You're just going to sit on that gift and be like, hey, I got it. Sadly, that's how a lot of us act in the church. But that's not what God has called us to. He's called you to be a minister. When each part is working, 
Let's try it again. I know it's, you're the first ones when I do this, so it's kind of like catching up. When each part is working, makes the body, makes the body, makes the body, so that it builds itself up in Just because I can't. One of my uh, former pastors that I I, uh, was part of his church back in Arizona, he said one of the most crippling ideas pervade the church over the centuries is that there is a special class of Christians called the clergy who do the ministry while the rest of the church sits back and, and lets them do it. I think that's sad is that I think people in the congregation are more than happy a lot of times to have the pastors do the work. I'm not blaming this all on you guys because he also said that pastors many times are more happy than to try to do all the work. This goes both ways. We've both gotten this one wrong. He also said many pastors, perhaps out of a lack of trust uh, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the flocks, or perhaps out of a wrongful need to control everything, have perpetuated this crippling distinction. They do almost everything in the local church while many just attend services and do nothing else. So congregation and, ha- and pastors many times have been content with this, with this relationship that we have formed through the years. I feel this tension as a pastor. A lot of times for me, it's easier, it'd be easier for me to do it myself. If you want something done right, you do it yourself. People are hard to work with sometimes. They don't always do it the exact way you would do it. I get this tension. I know exactly why pastors would default to this, I think, unbiblical role. But when each part is working, it makes the body so that it builds itself up in. That's right. A church can't grow when it relies too heavily on one, two, three, Ten pastors do do ministry. It can't grow if it's relying on 20% to do ministry. It's, it, has to, to, it takes the whole body, every part, doing what God is gifting it to do, to grow. All right. I've got to wrap this up really fast here. And I, I knew I'd kind of get to this place. Um, and I wish I had more time to be able to unpack this because it's rich. But the question is, is... Uh, what is the measurement of growth that God uses for his church? This is, this, you can read all sorts of books about this. How does, what is the measurement that God uses to measure growth in the church? I think it's the same measurement that we were talking about in the first, you know, first part of this section here. Christ. Get this. And this is what's fleshed out in the next few verses. This is the measurement that God uses to gauge the growth of his church. Until we all, all, put an all next to each one of these, because I think that all, God is talking about a collective growth of his bride of Christ. All, until we all attain unity of the faith. This is a group project. We haven't been called to mature by ourselves. God has called us all to knowledge of the Son of God. God has called us all to mature manhood, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. You start to get this measurement of Christ. That's that's the measure of growth that, that God has and expects from his church. That we will no longer be children, believing everything we hear by being, de- being deceived by man. But that instead that all of us are speaking the truth in love. Not just some, all of us are commanded to do that. 
And that we all grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is the measuring tape, not numbers. God blesses his church with numbers. God's expanding his kingdom. Praise God. But I didn't see numbers in the list for his church to be focusing on. God gives the increase. We need to sow the seed of the gospel. But for us to grow, this is what we need to be focusing on. We need to focus on that we as a body of Christ are all using our gifts and abilities to make the church grow by the, by the grace of God. All right, number four for all you kids out there and we're wrapping things up. The body works best when each part uses their gift to love and help all the others. I'll get that kids. The body works best when each part uses their gift to love and to help all the other parts. So in closing... I'd like to just read you a quote from a guy named Oswald Chambers. You might uh, know him. Um, he was, a, I think, a Scottish uh, preacher, evangelist back in the 18, late 18, early 1900s. But you might know him as the, a famous, uh, the author of a famous daily devotional. It was a compilation of his writings and, and lectures, and it's called My Utmost for His Highest. But uh, he had this quote, and it's, it's always stuck with me. And he said this, he says, we are not here to develop a spiritual life of our own. That blew me away because I was always, I, I think in terms of personal holiness, what does God, you know, just me, 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 me. And that's good. I don't want to say we shouldn't be personally holy. But that's not where we stop. We are not here to develop a spiritual life of our own or to enjoy spiritual retirement. We are here to so realize Jesus Christ that the body of Christ might be built up. If you are not part of building up the body of Jesus Christ, you have not realized Jesus Christ. Get it? We can't claim to be a mature believer and be separated from the body of Christ and not building it up. Because that is, that is part of our purpose. That is part of the great commission for the church to build itself up in love. So I thought to myself, that, you know, that's, that's exactly what the book of Ephesians is about. Actually, that's exactly what Paul is challenging believers uh, you know, today to do. Not to develop a spiritual life of our own, but to so realize Christ that the body may be built up. He goes on, just one more sentence here. He says, it will be a big humiliation to realize that I have not been concerned about realizing Jesus Christ, but only about realizing what he has done for me will be a big humiliation if that's all you know about the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love is just what he's done for you. It's so much broader. God has come to, to he, Jesus died on the cross for the, for the world. He is rescuing men and women, children from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And for us to reduce the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, to just me, we're missing out on so much the grandeur and the greatness of the work of Christ 